Good afternoon. Welcome to SPAC Insider's live webinar to discuss the business combination of Cerberus Telecom Acquisition Corporation with Core Wireless. I'm Christy Marvin with SPAC Insider, and in a few moments, the management teams of both Cerberus Telecom and Core will give a brief presentation, which will be followed by a Q&A session. Today, we have joining us Ramil Bale, President and CEO of Core, Puneet Pamnani, Chief Financial Officer of Core, uh, Tim Donahue, CEO of Cerberus Telecom, Nick Robinson, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Cerberus Telecom, and finally, Michael Palmer, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Cerberus Telecom. You can submit questions at any time by clicking the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window. And with that, I'll now hand it over to Ramil to begin. Ramil? Hi, thanks very much, Christy, and good afternoon. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for taking a little bit of time to uh, meet with us today. I'm going to try to walk and, you know, talk and chew gum all at the same time here, see if I can't bring up this presentation to just act as a bit of a backdrop for our conversation. Look, Christy's already um, introduced the folks on the call, so and, and, and some of the details of the SPAC transaction, we can talk about in Q&A if somebody's interested, but you know, all of this information is out there in our public investment deck. So in keeping and respecting the, uh, you know, the request for me to, to, to keep the, the spoken part of this presentation to 15 or 20 minutes, I'm just going to rock and roll right into what we think are the highlights. Um, again, there's a 50 page investment deck out there with a fully recorded webcast if somebody's really interested. Uh, this is a shortened version that focus on these seven highlights that uh, I think we should talk about here for, eh, let's call it 15 minutes, and then we look forward to the Q&A and uh, interactivity. So, so the first, you know, comment, and, and really, I think, perhaps the highlight of highlights is um, that Core is an absolute pure play IoT company. We help our customers deploy, manage, and scale their IoT applications, whatever their use cases are, whatever they call the problem they're solving or the solution they're delivering. Many of our customers don't necessarily think they're in IoT, right? Um, it, it just happens to be that just about anything hanging off the internet is, a, is an opportunity for us, is scope for what we do. Because how we sort of do the deploy managed scale is through a combination of connect connectivity solutions and analytics services, which we believe make us a, a very compelling uh, absolutely one of a kind, uh, you know, sort of from a positioning standpoint, as we take advantage and get prepared for this decade of IoT that's that's coming at us um, between 2021 and 2030. Just to put things in perspective, and we'll talk about this some, a bit, little bit later, we're going from roughly 12 billion devices to roughly sub 75 billion uh, IoT devices between 2020 and 2030. You can see a couple of the other sub-bullets here uh, on the Pure Play IoT. Uh, three straight years, we've made leaps and bounds on the Gartner Magic Quadrant, which is uh, really focused on connectivity, which is our bread and butter business that we've been in uh, for a couple of decades. Uh, large, uh, diversified enterprise customer base, over 12 million devices, high growth industries is our focus. So that's sort of point one about the company. Point two is the market, you know, could not be more helpful, right? I mean, I've I've run a public company before, I've run a private equity company before. Uh, the big difference between those two CEO stints was frankly the market, the tailwinds that we had, um, you know, in the second business I was in versus the first business I, I, I ran were, were, were remarkably different. And guess what? This one has tailwinds like, you know, one rarely gets to see. 
right? That that 12 billion to, to 75 billion uh, explosion tidal wave of devices that's coming at us because all of these things, eSIM, 5G, edge compute, AIoT, where artificial intelligence, AI meets IoT, are coming together uniquely uh, over the coming uh, few years to really make this a very exciting time. The third point, and this is sort of an often misunderstood or, or, or not understood part of our story, right? People assume that we're moving from a connectivity only sort of focus to connectivity solutions analytics because it gives us so many additional revenue and growth levers. And they'd be right, but the fundamental reason we're doing it is because there is a strong need for all of those services. There is a very strong need for uh, a simplified IoT in a box adoption framework because it has been too complicated to adopt IoT over the past decade. A decade ago, analysts were saying there would be 25 billion connected devices by 2020. How many were there in actuality? About 12. Why did we only meet about half of the hype? Because of all of these complexities that the industry created. We solve for those complexities. We have learned from our couple of decades in machine to machine and IoT. We have served over 10,000 use cases. And so we can simplify the complexities. We can make it easy for customers to adopt IoT. And again, that's our sort of unique uh, competitive position. We do so with a series of technology and IP stacks, or really three major technology stacks um, that, that you know, should hopefully clear up for anyone that has a question about our services that, you know, we are purely a, a SaaS, you know, IP powered company. We don't employ a single consultant uh, in our shop, you know, 500 odd people, uh, hub and spoke, classic SaaS model with more stickiness than typical SaaS models. In fact, and kind of a best of breed SaaS and PaaS if you, if you ask me to describe the business. And some of why I say that is bullet five, right? Highly predictable, highly recurring revenue. Uh, when you put a SIM card out there on a device and let it go, it can go seven to 10 years. That leads to the staggering 91 plus percent recurring revenue that we had in 2020. And this average visibility, revenue visibility uh, stat that is quite remarkable, uh, 90% over three years. We're going to uh, talk you through a couple of the financial pages. Uh, you will see there that, uh, you know, gross margins are healthy, but DA margins are uh, actually growing beyond 30% in the five-year projections. We provide very strong free cash flow. We have built a low CapEx, highly profitable business built on the backs a little bit of these very high CapEx business models. The MNOs, the carriers on the one hand, who spend billions of dollars on spectrum and on towers, Satellites, on the other hand, you've got to put your satellites up in the sky. You've got to update those birds, keep them up there. We've built our business on top of that with, with very powerful characteristics. And you will find, you know, in our financial section, in our public investments deck, that, you know, the number we're asking, quote unquote, to be underwritten to is about $414 million of revenue in 2025. That is what I consider to be our base case, okay? It's about a 17% CAGR over the coming five years. We like to talk about a core, our upside case. We like to talk about a much higher set of aspirations, including um, M&A activity, inorganic activity that we believe we are uniquely um, opening up. In fact, one of the main reasons for us to go public 
is indeed to uh, add the financial flexibility to reduce the uh, eight plus terms of debt we have to roughly two terms of debt and unleash sort of that M&A capability. And with that, we think the upside case could be something closer to a billion dollars with something closer to a, a 40 plus percent CAGR uh, uh, rather than the base case 17%. Every slide I have in here, and there's not that many, uh, basically just support these seven points. And so let's get into those. Um, talked about the pure play first, right? And, and this is the company at a glance. I mean, if you, if you remember nothing else from today, just remember that we are the trusted advisors. We have been doing this for longer than most anybody, a couple of decades now in machine to machine and then Internet of Things. We've seen 10,000 use cases. We can help you deploy, manage, and scale. And we do it through our IP-based services, Econotrivy Solutions Analytics. I've talked about a lot of the things uh, at the bottom already. And of course, you know, all of the excitement of IoT, eSIM, 5G, et cetera. So let me, in the interest of time, move to this next page, which is a nice little sort of summary of our services today. So think three years ago, three and a half years ago is when I got to the company, but roughly three years ago when much of the leadership team around me uh, arrived, um, you know, we took over a company that was 100% connectivity. In fact, it was 100% connectivity as a service or CAS, the very top line here. Um, we have actually added some connectivity services, specifically connectivity enablement services. It's relatively small for us, but it's a nice chunk uh, of, of revenue that we've added. And then we've added, you know, additional services in the, in, uh, you know, below that dotted line in the solutions area. And yet the, the mix has gone down to sort of 74, 26, right? So for, for all of connectivity, CAS and CS. And so that shows you the momentum of some of our newer services and why we're so excited about it. And again, in the base case, we think it'll be close to 60-40 as the mix. My suspicion is that if we're closer to the upside case in actuality, it'll be because IoT solutions will grow even faster than how we're projecting in the base case. This thing could go to 50-50, this thing could go past 50-50, the other direction. Part of that is because the solutions business is chunky. You know, it adds millions of dollars very quickly when you can sell lots and lots of services to customers. Connectivity by itself takes a while to build up steam uh, and is obviously small. It's, it's an ARPU-oriented usage pricing business model, right? So that usage pricing model, you know, indicates on the right-hand side, per subscriber, per month, lifetime of the device. And by the way, every time you put a SIM card out there, connect a device in an IoT deployment, the lifetime of that device is seven to 10 years, it's growing because low power, you know, our, our, our battery technologies are getting better. These things are now starting to last 10 and 12 and 15 years. And we can get, we're pretty much guaranteed of, of getting the revenue uh, on that device for the, for the lifetime of that device, because there is no business case. It's way too expensive to send a crew out there, to roll a truck out there, to change that SIM card and to save a few cents on the connectivity plan. There is no business case when a truck roll can cost between $100 and $200. So that's what creates the massive stickiness of this business, uh, the multi-year characteristics and visibility in this business. We've added a whole series of IoT device management. I mean, again, you know, there was a consulting report I read when I first started this business. And when I went out and met our customers, it was remarkable to me. You need 18 partners on average to launch an end-to-end -end IoT solution, 18 partners. That means you're probably talking to a couple of hundred, 180 type, you know, partners, potential partners, narrowing that down to, let's say, 90, 18 areas, let's say an RFP for five per area. I mean, it is just a, 
right? Remarkably complex uh, program. And that's why the Cisco statistic was that two thirds uh, of all uh, IoT prototypes and, and proof of concepts were either failing or stalling based on data from the first half of the last decade. Well, we've learned from those lessons and companies like ours are really here to provide all these services, make it really easy for you to come to one place and get it. And that's the premise of what we do um, at CORE. Obviously happy to answer more questions on those services. A quick view here, uh, the, the, the little use case examples on the right are just to showcase what I've already said. This isn't some esoteric, fancy, sophisticated stuff only. Sure, some of this stuff can get pretty sophisticated, pretty mission critical. Some of this stuff is pretty darn simple. But whatever it is, is an opportunity for us to grow. And we have massive moats, right? 44 carrier integrations. Each individually would take about two years to do and cost a million to $2 million, right? That's what we've put together through the series of acquisitions we did between 2012 to 2016, that time frame. Uh, leading platform stacks, I'm going to talk about that. And then with our managed services, we provide a lot of um, uh, industry vertical knowledge, but also um, FDA regs and ISO certifications and HIPAA and, you know, uh, I mean, all sorts of, if you think about our, our, our you know, our business model as the platform and IP in the middle, we then add sort of adjacent congruent layers of um, of, of competitive moat above that with sort of everything we do. So now I'm going into number two, right? Um, and I'm going to do this if I can, just so that you can see the number two there, there it is. So we're on to point number two, which as you will recall from the initial list of seven was the market, right? So there's the market going from less than $400 billion in 2020 to $7 trillion in 2030, we are close to a trillion dollars in 2025. The market's roughly three pieces, connectivity, which is about 5% of the market, managed services, apps and platforms. We started in connectivity only, as you will recall. Uh, in fact, uh, rough jungle math, um, we hit about 60% of the connectivity market when this leadership team arrived. So I call it, we had about a 3% of the market that we would address of the IoT market. From that 3%, we're going closer to 30%. That's how you get rocket ship sort of growth, um, uh, you know, in the upside case that we're talking about is because the ability for us to address market needs is, is going up by an order of magnitude as we've added a series of those managed services that make up about 20% um, of the business or actually over 20% of uh, almost 25% of, uh, of the market. And then, um, and then the applications and platforms business also we are participating in. But look, the way this market manifests itself more than anything else is the devices, right? When, there's, when it's a $7 trillion market, and does it really matter if it hits it in 2029 or 2031? The point is it's heading to that size and there will be 75 billion IoT devices hanging off of there. The consumer devices, which are roughly half the market today, laptops, smartphones, et cetera, those grow, but grow at a much slower rate and are the other 16 billion uh, of that 90 plus billion devices hanging off the net. And just think about that for a second. I mean, 90, that's nine or 10 devices per human being on the planet, right? Which leads to this massive opportunity to connect these devices, get data off of these devices. And that of course is our opportunity. So when you see it going from the 12 to the 75, the same numbers, you see how the short range is becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of this 
over time, that's your Wi-Fi's and your Bluetooth's and your Zigbee's, the stuff you don't pay for on a per usage per megabyte basis. And then above it is all of the licensed and unlicensed cellular and satellite and so on and so forth. And so if you take those same set of services you saw from me earlier and just array those on this 75 billion, right? You can see that our IoT solutions, managed services, analytic services apply really to all 75 billion. And then our core business CAS and our connectivity enablement services apply to the, to the areas above. And you have eSIM, massive IoT and 5G coming. And we will have time to talk about that in, in Q&A mode. And as you all know, once 5G really kicks in for, for IoT, I mean, it is just powering a connected planet with use cases we haven't dreamt of yet, right? In a few scant years, we will see a wave of innovation faster and, 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 and more volume you know, than, than we saw when 4G came. And there was plenty of innovation with 4G, right? Suddenly you had Uber and Airbnb and, and Snapchat was possible because of the power we had at our fingertips. 5G will uh, again do an order of magnitude there. So let me get to point three or seven. I said a couple of times now, there's a lot of complexity, right? It's very difficult for customers to implement an end-to-end -end IoT solution. The most common seven challenges are on the left, from security at the bottom to fragmented ecosystem, back to my 18 partners point, to the lack of in-house expertise, to the compatibility, compliance issues with HIPAA and everything else that I talked about. And so our approach to this market is to say, look, you know, you need to take seven steps. And for those of you interested in the appendix of our investor deck, there's the full seven by seven framework, as we call it. There's seven deliverables underneath each of these seven steps here, from strategy, through tech selection, through connectivity, through the deployment and operations and sustainment of the devices out there, through to the analytics that most people actually do this for. You apply our IoT in a box to a customer to try to make it real and say, okay, well, how do you simplify, right? Well, so this is a customer, they're in cardiac rhythm monitoring. So if you have a pacemaker in your heart or like my father, he has a little monitor near his heart, uh, something has to get the data off of that, right? And have a hub device, a gateway device, a monitor there, typically on your bedside because the bed's where you spend several hours a day and the range of that Bluetooth in this case is only 10 or 12 feet at most. And so, you know, it gathers data on how that heart's doing and how the patterns are. And then once a day, in my dad's case, other people can be, you know, depends on the criticality of the patient, that then data has to go back into a health cloud and a physician portal. That's where our CAS kicks in. So our solutions business helps get the device configured, staged, shipped, you know, tested for connectivity and sent out. Our connectivity business, the right side of this page, just continues to grow. This customer ended last year with almost a million subscribers. They'll go over that this year. Um, they've actually just given us recently a, a massive upsize order because of all the 2G, 3G replacement volume that, that, that they have. Um, we ship on their behalf to 57 countries. Uh, and then when people move, they take their pacemakers with them. So we actually get data for them from 119 countries. The complexity of having to implement that one carrier at a time, by the way, two to three carriers per country to ensure yourself of connectivity, it, it, you know, you wouldn't get the use case off the ground if you didn't have a solution like, uh, like ours at core. I've talked about three stacks of IP. Right under step four, the core one platform, seven engines, the core eSIM platform, and the core hypercore. Think cellular core networks, right? And we can integrate these. It's API everything because it's a new platform. We spent over $30 million of the $50 million investment we've made these last three years on our IP. 
Um, all of this can be integrated into a customer's applications, or you can build applications on top of our network, or you can just use our services, you know, as a, just log into our portal and use our connectivity management system called Connectivity Pro, et cetera. I don't have the time, at least up front, to talk much more about this. Happy to answer questions and talk about specifically these seven engines, which are a fantastic design to use modern technologies to solve the big problems of IoT, like the big data problem. Because it's not just big data, it's bigger data than we've ever seen. It's big data streaming all the time. And it, it takes some unique technologies to, to actually be able to process it and give it to the customer in a standard format, right? I mean, the IoT problem fundamentally is a many to one problem. The customer shouldn't care. Did it come satellite? Did it come this protocol? Did it come 2G in Brazil? Did it come 4G in the Netherlands? What carrier, how, where? It shouldn't care. We should have the ability to bring all that together, aggregate it, and give it to them one way that they want to see it. Oh, by the way, send some of it to the cloud, please, because I have applications running on Amazon. It's a massively complex business problem that Core has figured out how to solve over two decades. Uh, I talked a lot about our revenue visibility. I talked about why there's revenue visibility. This just makes that point that, you know, looking out into 2023, and I have a, a business that we can say we have about 90, 91% visibility into. Here's the base case, right? The base case says $414 million of revenue in 2025. I talked about the EBITDA going up from 27 and 28 to 34%. Now, we may choose to invest some of that and get a better top line growth going. Those are conversations the new PubCo board can have. We certainly think we can be a rule of 40 player out in the communication SaaS business. Um, and by the way, look at that uh, uh, free cash flow, right? I talked about highly profitable, high free cash flow business, $350 million of free cash flow thrown off at this base case level, right? Again, at the upside case, there would be more, you know, could we choose some, put some of it to work in very accretive um, uh, M&A, you know, those sorts of things. You can see the companies on the move, the transformation that we've been working on for the last two and a half-ish years, starting to pay off real inflection point, total contract value growing leaps and bounds, and by the way, when you get that flywheel of getting connected SIMs out there, if you look at our go forward customers here on the right side of this page, you know, we ended Q1 last year with 8.9 million SIMs with them. We ended Q4 with 10.9. And again, these things are revenue for seven and 10 years. So it's that building excitement that I talk about. And as we get to the end of the presentation here, I want to just, um, oops, didn't move. Why does it keep stopping and going back? Let's do it this way. Okay. The, uh, this is the upside case. The upside case basically takes uh, our, our base case, organic growth of customers growing at 20% and the cross-sell opportunity that's huge cross-sell opportunity in front of us, adds in two new sets of investments we're making, pre-configured IoT solutions in the industries of focus and edge and AI analytics. And we think we can get closer to 700 organically. You add two or 300 million with M&A, you can get to a billion dollars in this business. And I'm now going to just leave this page up here for you to observe and come to your own conclusions around uh, how we think our valuation is, is, let's just say, very reasonable compared to some peers out in the market. And uh, Christy, I will turn it over to you to start asking questions while folks can look at this on their own. Great. Uh, thanks, Ramil, for the presentation. Um, mm -hmm. So we're now going to move to the Q&A portion of the webinar. I'd like to remind all of our viewers, you can submit your questions if you haven't already by clicking the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window. Uh, and with that, let's begin with the Q&A. Um, so first question, 
Um, as the, as the world becomes more interconnected through the internet and as more humans operate several devices throughout their day, where are your most immediate growth opportunities across industries and what are the biggest challenges? Yeah, it's a great question to kick us off. So thank you. Um, look, <clears throat> it, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting to observe how industry sector by industry sector, and really within those sectors and segments, uh, use case by use case, uh, the adoption of IoT is is accelerating, right? So when you think of the term IoT, most people would say it started with kind of fleet connected car, right? That whole telematics space is where IoT became real, right? And we would largely agree. And by the way, the name of the company at one point was Core Telematics. Uh, and, and fleet management as an industry was our largest industry vertical up until last year. And then sort of two things happened. We acquired a little business called Integron to really turbocharge our uh, IoT managed services and, and, and that whole new solutions play because uh, they've been doing it for a while. They happen to be uh, majority revenue in, in, in what we call connected health. And so you took our fastest growing, not our largest at the time, but our fastest growing industry of connected health. You took the Integron um, sort of catalyst and then you take um, – the pandemic, where in 14 or 15 months, we've seen more than 14 or 15 years worth of adoption of IoT technologies in connected health, and, and connected health turned into our largest industry last year, right? So about a third of our business was connected health last year, uh, a little less than a quarter of our business is fleet, and you can just see the excitement of what's coming, right, um, in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, let me actually, even as I'm talking, bring up our industry chart from our uh, investor deck, if I can. And uh, but anyway, just just so you understand, our five industry focus verticals are fleet and connected health. Of course, we've talked about uh, asset monitoring, communication service providers, and perhaps the fastest growing of them all is industrial IoT. Right. If you've heard about Industry 4.0 and IIoT, some people think half of the total 75 billion devices will in some way be around industrial. So that's where we see the growth coming from in the future, Kristen. You're talking on mute, Kristen. you're on mute. Sorry. Zoom always trips me up that way. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned just now the five core target industries, and there's a, a question here about that. So um, of those five core target industries, which of these do you expect the most growth in the, com- uh, most growth in the coming years? Yeah, you know what? If I'm going to get uh, a couple more questions on this, I am going to go to the other deck. And, of course, it's all uh, uh, public information. Anyway, did it come up? I'm sorry, what was that? Did, did, my, did the new presentation start showing or no? Uh, it looks that way, yes. All right. Let me try this again. All right. What's coming uh, up? It says valuation benchmarking. Oh, it's still showing the old one. Let's not worry about it. I was just going to bring up the slide from the main investment deck that's out there for public to see. Uh, to showcase the, the the five industries, so look, there's there's very specific Kagers on there. Asset monitoring is the fastest growing of them at 34% Kager. So that you could take a point of view that says we'll grow with those industries, and you could be mostly right. Uh, I will tell you, however, that um, 
in the spirit of focus and in the spirit of big bets, and I'm a big believer in big bets, um, that may not be the way it pans out for us, right? So we are contemplating sort of a double down into connected health right now, for example. Uh, so anyway, so, so it's possible for us that uniquely and perhaps not, you know, what, what you might think from the outside looking in, that some of our actually larger industries today that may have slower market cagers might actually have higher cagers for core uniquely based on where we are placing our investments and our bets. Got it. Thanks, Ramil. Um, so this next question, actually, and maybe Nick, you can jump in here as well. Um, it says, it seems to me that this company should trade at 10 to 15 times revenue. How did Cerberus manage to get this thing so cheap? <laughs> That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, look, um, we actually do feel lucky that, uh, that, we, that we managed to uh, affect what I think is a pretty attractive valuation for for our shareholders and for and for pipe shareholders and for any new prospective shareholders on the phone um look we we, we would agree that this thing has incredible potential um i don't want to speak for for romal and uh and abri but i think the idea was to create a valuation that was attractive enough for folks where folks who come in at what we think is a really nice interesting inflection point and create a really nice launch pad for further upside and, uh, and look, going back to what Rommel said earlier about the 1 billion revenue plan over five years, we at Cerberus are going to do everything we can to make that $1 billion revenue can, uh, come to fruition. And when you start to get on that path, then I think we can really start to grow into those types of multiples. And I think it's, I think it's, it's very possible. Um, you know, Rommel, I want to pass it over to you because I think, I think we've, we've both together had some really interesting conversations throughout the SPAC process with, uh, with analysts that are going to ultimately end up covering um, our stock. And, yeah. and uh, I think there are going to be some analysts out there that, that, that's, that's, that's where this, this company should be. No, um, I think that's really well said. said. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Sorry. I, it, was, it was breaking up. So I thought you were done, but um, no, I, I think that's really well said. The only thing I'm really going to add to that is this little second bullet here under valuation, existing holders of common stock, including Abri partners who Nick mentioned, are expected to roll 100% of their common, and not expected, they are rolling 100% of their common equity. So in other words, every dollar that we are raising through, of course, the, the SPAC that, uh, that CTAC raised before uh, as part of their IPO, and then through the pipe, which we upsized because we had demand around 2x of what we were asking for, um, every dollar you know, net of expenses for this transaction is going to write down our debt, which tells you that the... Um, that the uh, investment thesis is strong in the minds of uh, my, my current board, so to speak. Great. Thanks uh, to both of you for answering that. But uh, actually, Nick, we do have a follow-up question to that one. Um, and, you know, they, they say, you know, Cerberus is, is massive, right? And you have massive deal flow. So they wanted to um, ask how, if you could walk us through your process and how you landed on core. That's a great question. Um, so look, I think, I think what's, what's interesting and differentiated about Cerberus is, uh, is we have this incredible group internally. It's called COAC. And what COAC is, is it's a, a group of about 100 men and women that are from industry, deep operational know-how. Uh, a lot of them former C-suite in nature, and they're all in-house. Um, I think from our, from our competitive standpoint, 
There are a lot of competitors out there I think have great advisory networks. Typically they're outside. We've got them inside. And my, my partner, Mike Palmer and I have been working deals with a lot of these advisors in this uh, technology and, te- and tech arena um, for a number of years. And so I think unlike a lot of SPACs out there where, you know, SPACs have to go out and lure in board members and, and, uh, and, and uh, management teams, you know, we kind of have them in-house. And, uh, and when you have a team uh, of folks like Tim Donahue, who, uh, who led Nextel and ultimately Sprint, when you've got people like Shigon Karadpur, who was a very senior guy at Verizon and then became the CEO of two tech companies, uh, when you've got the former CTO of Nokia on your board, Hossein Moyen, and so on and so forth, the list goes on and on. Um, so we've been working um, you know, technology with these guys for a number of years. And we didn't wake up one day and wanted to get into the SPAC business. We actually were looking at a number of deals that ultimately ended up going the SPAC route. And we sort of said, well, why don't we, why don't we create a product to allow us to capitalize on these type of opportunities? Uh, and so away we went. Because Mike Palmer and I were so focused on this opportunity set, we had a backlog of names to the tune of about 100. And because we had a great prior relationship with Avery, Core was already on our list. Um, and so when we got going, we got IPO'd vis-a-vis the SPAC. Um, Core was one of the ones that we gravitated to very early on. We had about five names early on that we did a very deep dive on. And it was very clear from the get-go that Core was, you know, uh, over and above uh, the best option. And, uh, and I think we're uniquely positioned to help Romel um, to, and help Romel take this company to the next, to the next level. Uh, and we, we uh, I'll let Romel speak for himself, but I think Romel felt the same way. And I think it's a really, really unique partnership that we've, uh, that we've established here. I think that's, again, I think that's really well said. And, and look, I mean, what impressed us, right? Because when, when Avery and when our board, when my current board came, came to me, came to our exec team and said, you know, we've, we've talked often, right? In fact, we've talked for almost three years now about an IPO being a, a, a logical strategic alternative for this company. I mean, you look at this company and you look at the recurring revenue characteristics and the visibility characteristics. You look at the fact that, Several members of uh, the management team, myself, the CHRO, the CFO, et cetera, have public company experience before. That's not, you know, always the case when small mid-cap private equity owned businesses have that kind of, if you will, you know, sort of breadth of characteristics of a, of a really good public company. And so we've been talking about this for a while. And then when they said, hey, look at, look at the, the, the credibility of, of Cerberus as a sponsor, look at the quality of the advisor. I mean, I, my first Zoom call, which I thought might be my last Zoom call, right? If I wasn't going to make it through the, the hundred assets that these guys were looking at, uh, I, I was blown away. I mean, the, the CEO of SeaTac, Tim Donahue of Nextel, as, as mentioned, the CTO of Shagan Karadpir, who was CTO of Verizon before I me. Mean, you just go down the list and you go, wow. I mean, the connectivity, the experience that, um, so I mean, look, if I was to summarize it for, for us as, as, as execs, and really as shareholders of the current core, you know, the three big reasons to go public, the financial flexibility point I've talked about before with, with, with writing down our debt and firing up M&A, et cetera, the, the obvious brand and visibility, right? Some of the people that have taken very big stakes in us through the pipe process will become some of my largest customers, by the way, as I talk to all of their portfolio companies as an example of that brand visibility. And then third, the connectivity and strength of Cerberus and, and, and the CTAC advisory group, et cetera. I mean, there's three really good reasons for us to, to have said yes to, to, to taking the call from CTAC. Uh, yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, 
So pivoting now to another question, um, Core has a, a very well-established history of integrating strategic transactions. Uh, so upon the closing of this transaction, the SPAC transaction, will you continue to focus on organic growth or will you continue to be aggressive with uh, acquisitions? Look, I, I don't know that I would say aggressive with acquisitions, but I, again, I mean, it's one of the big reasons for us to do this is that, um, look, look, when you have a clear winning strategy, you have a market that is supporting and has the tailwinds that we have. Sort of shame on us if we don't accelerate sort of the unlocking of shareholder value here by putting M&A to work as a strategic weapon, right? And, and so if we can do it with, with accretive, uh, you know, responsible, not for the sake of growth and for the sake of customers, we've, I think we've showcased here that we don't need M&A to grow. But, um, you know, if, 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 if we can bring in talented team members, my CEO of Core Connected Health was the CEO of Integron before we did that acquisition. If I could sort of snap my fingers and do an Integron-like acquisition for every one of the five industries and bring in great talent and capability, it'd be a no-brainer, right? Because I, I need these industries to be little $200 million companies, each of them, for us to be that billion-dollar dream. And so... Uh, I would say that when there's a people fit, a cultural fit, a capability fit, a strategic fit, we will be unhesitating uh, on, on M&A. Fantastic. Um, there is another question here um, asking you to maybe simplify the complexities of IoT. Um, can you maybe give an example of how Core provides seamless IoT solutions to its customers? Yeah, you know, let me um, let me actually go back to this case study and spend a minute more um, because maybe I went a little fast there. Where did we go? So, so this is this really is a pretty good example. And and again, in the appendix of our investment deck, which I keep having trouble when I try to share it on the other side. You know what? Let me try one more time, and if that still doesn't work, I will just stop doing it. <laughs> um, all right, let's try this. Please tell me you're seeing a different chart. Are you seeing a different deck? Uh, well, yes, but it's sort of uh, all in tile. For, oh, there we go. It says Core's IoT managed um, yeah. services portfolio. You see it now? Yep. Perfect. So let's really bring this question of what is the complexity of IoT to life, right? Because I, I can see why some of you might be saying, T tell me why this is complicated. And, and, and I'm telling you, you know, it doesn't seem that complicated when... You, you ask for it to be shipped to you and it shows up in a box and there's a little hub device and a, you know, a, 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 a little thing that connects into your, your, your monitor and, and starts to, on a wireless basis, connect to your, your pacemaker in your heart. But it's built that way. It's designed that way. It's designed to work out of the box and be really simple. And we work really, really hard to make it look simple. But underneath it, all of these things are happening. Those seven things that I talked about in the one-stop shop, that's those seven things, the seven deliverables underneath them is the seven things. And don't worry, I'm not going to go through 49 here. I'm just trying to represent, right, um, why it is that two-thirds of prototypes and proof of concepts fail and people don't get their business cases right and, and, and just managing the technology. I mean, let's take a simple example. The example I've been using in, in, in these roadshows and pipe conversations is a manufacturer of washing machines. If I need to connect washing machines in 50 countries, because I ship to 50 markets, you know, I need about 100 to 150 carriers that I need to partner with, right? So if in the US, it would be AT&T, Verizon, t right? 
Um, and so just that lends to so much complexity because that's 100 to 150 contracts. That's 100 to 150 different IoT platforms you have to log into for every one of those carriers and order sims and provision sims. It's 100 to 150 uh, bills to reconcile at the end of the month, 150 phone numbers you got to call for support. We bring all of that down to one screen, no matter what the technology is, what the device is. We call it our multi-multi-multi. Multiple devices and multiple technologies and multiple countries and regions of the world, multiple protocols, that many-to-one type problem that we solve in IoT. And by the way, all of that is just you know, under number three, the connectivity part of this puzzle. You take that kind of complexity across all of this, and we're very transparent with our customers. We tell you what we do ourselves, right? Um, so for example, if I build this out, everything in green we do ourselves, you would expect core to do everything under three because that's what we've done for 20 years. So, you know, everything there is green. In other areas, not everything is green. In many cases, we have to work with partners to do it. Those are in blue. And then some things we just absolutely don't do and we outsource entirely. We have this conversation transparently with the customer. The customer says, okay, um, you know, I want you to just give me names of the partners in some of these areas and I want to pick them myself. Or you know what? I don't care. Core, you guys know how to do this stuff. You just take it, please, sort of as the prime, if you will, solution integrator, and you just help me do it. And the visual I want you all to have is that the little tip of the iceberg that you see above the water, that's the end-to-end -end solution of our customer to you. That little simple box that shows up and you put to use, whatever. It might be continuous glucose monitoring or whatever, right? The 90% of that iceberg that's under the water, all of that complexity that goes into it, that's where we want to be. I never actually want to compete up at the top. I never want to be the next continuous or next best continuous glucose monitoring provider. I'm not asking you to invest in me because I'm saying I'm going to be the best anything. The only thing I'm going to be best at is working and putting the efforts of my customers uh, to, to, to deploy successfully and help them be successful. And some of them will be. Some of them will be absolute unicorns and we will grow with them, right? It's a pure play, diversified IoT bet like I don't, I don't believe there is out there. So now let's take that same cardiac rhythm monitoring use case that we used in the other case. So every time, right, this customer has to deploy, we've talked about it, you got to do all of this, right? 57 countries would have taken 57 times doing all of this. All the things we do at core for them are highlighted on here in blue, right? So from what connectivity should we use in which country, what hardware, et cetera, what, what, what refinements do we need to make to the solution set? Is it all certified and right that the network will allow us to connect when it gets there? Of course, everything in connectivity, but think about what we do with the devices. They place one purchase order with us somewhere around 45 days uh, before the quarter starts. And they tell us how many devices they want shipped in the next quarter. And that's it. That's how simple we make this for the customer, right? From there on, the devices actually are manufactured by a third party, uh, are shipped to us. We, we um, configure it top to bottom, right firmware, right software, put a SIM in, make sure it is connecting. We stage it, we kit it, we ship it, we support it. If for some reason it doesn't work right out of the box, we support it the, when, 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 the, when the patient or the consumer calls, we answer the phone calls, we take care of all of that, any returns that need to happen, all of this is made simpler. And oh, by the way, underneath all of that is our CAS service and all of that IP, because, you know, again, getting data from 100 plus countries, shipping to 57 countries, 
this is the stuff that most people would fail due to, and, and we enable that success. So I'm hoping um, all of those words, Christy, helped with that answer. <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, thanks, Ramil. Yeah. Um, okay, so next question here. Um, it says, Core seems to be a company with real revenue, real EBITDA, and real prospects, uh, which is a little bit different than you know some of the other maybe SPAC target companies we've seen. Um, so why did you choose the SPAC route to go public? Yeah, no, look, it's, uh, I mean, again, a, a really good question and probably a pertinent question given the times we live in and, and some of the, uh, the potential excesses that, uh, that the SEC is and should be, you know, looking at, at et cetera, right? Um, but again, these are the things we just don't worry about, right? I mean, as, as I actually said a little while ago, you know, we've talked about a potential public exit, you know, sort of forever, right? Um, I, I won't, I won't hazard a, a probability on it because maybe the number in my head is different from my chairman, you know, or somebody on my board, but there was some probability that we would have chosen to go an IPO route, you know, anyway, uh, in the next couple of years. And so again, for us, it wasn't, um, trying to jump on some kind of current wave for us, it was very sound logic for why we should go public, right? The delevering, the financial flexibility, the M&A enablement, the, the brand and visibility. I mean, we've been hard at work for three, three and a half years. And yes, our transformation is not done. I talk about a five-year transformation that we're continuing to work through. But we've been a really well-kept secret. <laughs> if you knew Core at all, you probably still think of us as an IoT connectivity company. And now we do all of this, not just step three, Right. And so just telling the story is, 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 is high value. And then you add all of the CTAC um, quality advisory, you know, servers behind you kind of credibility. And you say, hey, this is a short form. It's not going to take us 18 to 24 months of distraction. This will get done in six and nine months. You know, um, seems like a, right, a, a really compelling way to go. And so that's why in the sort of October-ish time frame, we... Uh, we accepted that first Zoom call with uh, with Mike and Nick. <laughs> Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, for sure. And especially with the value add of Cerberus. So, um, all right. So, so next question here. It asks um, if the company is on pace to grow revenues to one billion in five years, it will be growing at uh, approximately thirty percent. Given that prolific growth profile, do you think a company like Amazon could take this thing private at a three to five billion valuation? Well, so I, I don't I don't know that you mean take it private. I mean, because uh, Amazon's a public company itself. But I, I mean, I, I think I think it's an acquisition question, really, isn't it? Um, um, and uh, you know, I, look, it's um, first of all, it's a little bit tricky territory because I don't get to speak on behalf of an Amazon or really anybody else's M and A strategy, right? Um, but l- let me say a couple of things that I think would be useful, right? Um, uh, to the to the to the question. So first, I'll sort of agree with the hypothesis that's really being floated here, which is, could we be a, a, a target, you know, for somebody that just feels like they have to play in IoT or, or or what have you? Could we be sure, right? I mean, I sort of joked about how we we you know there, there's a small chance we could be the um, the public company with the shortest stint as a public company or something, right? But again, none of us knows that, right? Um, but I would say that that the person asking the questions got the correct, I think, thinking around this because we've got a forward-leaning strategy that 
that I don't think anybody else is sort of really around, uh, you know, in terms of being able to catch up with us, right? So, so now that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to stay paranoid, by the way. We, we, we work awfully hard. But anyway, so that's, that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is specific to the hyperscalers and the hypercloud guys. They are not necessarily looking to sort of control this last mile of connectivity, right? If you think about their business models, they are 100% focused on getting more devices, more machines working on their backend services using their compute and storage. So they're investing in edge and edge technology companies that sit on those devices and can connect directly, et cetera, et cetera. We are their best partners. We are very, our entire IP stack that I've talked about is highly complementary with the hyperscaler. One of the three hyperscalers um, in particular, I don't think I need to name them, uh, but one in particular is, is working with us on a half dozen or seven different projects right now, right? That's how closely we're collaborating with them. And obviously we think there's a payoff there in terms of uh, getting a share of the volume that's going on there. Got it. Thanks. Um, so uh, actually, this is a question probably more best directed toward Nick. Um, can you give us a sense of the timeline and when you think the shareholder vote might be approximately? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I think we're targeting sort of end of June, early July. Um, and I think uh, I think keep your keep your eyes peeled for uh, for continued press releases out of the company. Um, keep your eyes peeled for, uh, you know, for a, a little s a snapshot or taste of what Q1 looks like. And then once we get into to June, uh, we're going to get very active again as we get closer to the uh, official DSPAC and shareholder vote. So, uh, look, I would say that we've, um, not to speak for Romo, but the company has uh, continued to perform very well. There's been some great press release announcements, some great partnerships that have been established. We feel very good about the DSPAC process. Um, and we think that's going to line up end of June, early July. Rome, anything to add there? No, I, I think you, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, uh, we're a, we're a round into the SEC now, right? The, the SEC's first set of comments we responded to as of last Friday, the 14th of May, and depending on when we get the next round of responses, depending on how long that list is, um, is there a third round, et cetera. It's, it's like, like Nick said, late June, July is our best guess at this point. Okay, great. Well, um, we are kind of running up on uh, two o'clock, um, so we probably have time only for one more question. Um, this one asks, you know, you mentioned uh, that you expect revenue to double by 2025, and is that based mostly on expected 5G adoption, or is it uh, M&A pipeline or something else? Yeah, so look, so the, when you say double, you're talking about the 200 and something go to the 400 and something. And so you're looking at our base case. So I just want to establish that as my first comment because the billion is clearly a, a 5X type thing, not a 2X type thing, right? So you're talking about our base case. Our base case is purely organic growth, okay? Uh, and has, has no M&A baked into it. The M&A is baked into the upside case. And of course, we're not asking for any credit for the M&A type activity in, in terms of, uh, underwriting to, to the to the future model. Uh, our growth is we're we're, we're very confident um, in 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 those numbers, uh, and we are not uh, uniquely not dependent on any one technology. The beauty of being the global independent that gets to work with different carriers, different technologies, is that you know our job is to make 
our customers' IoT deployments and use cases work, right? And so the demand is there today, and we're going to fill it with the technologies and networks available today. Depending on who you speak to, uh, 5G for IoT, to specifically answer that question, uh, is a couple of years away in, in, in terms of really getting mature, right? In my own chart that I showcased you earlier, I had it out there as the third of the three big drivers. I actually think eSIM is going to be a much bigger driver of IoT growth. LPWA is going to be a much bigger driver growth for the next three to five years. And, it, and it'll really be 5G in the second half of the decade. So yeah, bottom line yet, if 5G was delayed another six months, another 12 months, it makes not an iota worth a difference. Our confidence in the $414 million number is not impacted at all. Okay, got it. Great answer. Um, I actually, I'm going to slip in one more question here, and uh, maybe Puneet, maybe you can answer this one. Um, it says, can you discuss how you compensate and use wireless networks to connect your uh, customers' IoT devices? Um, do you use your own wireless networks or, or not? So we typically buy uh, base bandwidth from carriers such as AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile. We have 30 carrier relationships across the globe. We are paying them typically on a per month per SIM charge plus user charges. That's the general model. Now, you know, we are buying the base layer connectivity, but our, the IP network on top is our own. The platform management is definitely our own. That allows customers to manage hundreds of thousands, millions of SIMs really on our platform. So it's a lot of value addition on top of the bandwidth that we're actually buying from the carrier network. So I wouldn't say you know, we are, we are, we are a reseller in that sort, right? There's a lot of value addition in the middle. Got it. Okay, great. Well, I, I think that does it for us. Um, I'd like to thank uh, the teams from both core and CTAC for joining us today, as well as the audience and um, look for a replay to be circulated in the next day or two. Uh, thanks everybody for joining and have a great afternoon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.